What was the best gift you ever received as a kid? Was it a cherished toy, a wall decoration, or something completely off the wall? Chances are, if you remember it fondly, it wasn't a practical tool, a pair of socks, or something for the home. That makes sense, I suppose? If you had a positive emotional connection to a gift, you would remember that feeling much longer than that really practical gift your Aunt Sally gave you. But what role do emotions play on other opinions and attitudes? Surely your long-held political beliefs and opinions about social issues endure because they're based on logic and reason. Well, perhaps not. More recently, researchers are finding that emotionality is important in making opinions and attitudes about all sorts of things last much longer. Hi, I'm Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and you're listening to Under the Cortex. To tell us more about emotion and opinion, I have two authors from a recently published article, Matt Rockledge and Andy Luttrell. Hi, I'm Matt Rockledge. I'm an assistant professor of marketing at University of Massachusetts at Boston. And I'm Andy Luttrell. I'm an assistant professor of psychological science at Ball State University. So your most recent research focuses on the role that emotion plays in having an opinion or an attitude endure. Could you give us a little background on that? What's the core takeaway from this research? Yeah, so uh, I think to sort of set the stage for why there's even, it's even important for there to be a core takeaway is to think about what an attitude is. So attitudes are these things that we all carry around with us all the time. Overall, our positive or negative evaluation of something. So if you're a coffee drinker, you have a positive attitude toward coffee. If you're a tea drinker, you have a positive attitude toward tea. And so we wanted to know more about how stable those attitudes are over time, right? Just because I say I like coffee today, is it mean that I'm going to say I like coffee a year from now if you survey me again? And there's been some work that looks at just the general question, do attitudes endure? Are they the same when I measure them again? Um, And that's one way to think about the question. But another way is to think about which kinds of attitudes endure, right? How could I know in advance which attitudes are going to stand the test of time. And so we looked at something that that Matt has done a bunch of research on, which is the emotionality of the attitude. How much is that attitude based in emotion? And we find, as you mentioned, that the more people have an opinion of something, evaluate something, have an attitude towards something because of their emotional reactions, those feelings that they have inside, the more that opinion tends to stay the same when we ask them again later. Yeah, and we, we were interested in this because on, on the one hand, we thought, well, it seems like if you have an emotional reaction to something, that could disappear very quickly, and then maybe your attitude would be gone quickly as well. You know, we all have bad moods or good moods, and then we're out of those moods, and later our opinion changes. Uh, but we thought, well, if the actual object that elicits the emotion uh, is, is what causes the emotion, then maybe the emotion attached to that object and the resulting attitude sticks around for, for quite a bit of time. So we, we were a bit mixed about, well, it could go one way or other, but we had a pretty fair idea that we thought we thought it would stick around. And, and that's what we found. So this is not the same thing as just changing in tastes as we grow older in age. It's, you know, when I was a kid, Brussels sprouts were appalling. Now I really enjoy them. This is a different level of opinion and attitude you're talking about. Yeah, that's an interesting example to think of like what time course we're talking about, right? So the lifetime is a pretty long time course, right? There are lots of opportunities to update what your feelings are about that. 
But the idea is that as a young kid, right, if your aversion to Brussels sprouts is really rooted in this feeling of, of hating it and thinking it's disgusting, at least for a while, that's the association that you're going to build up with Brussels sprouts, right? You're not going to magically overnight be like, oh, wait, maybe I like it. <laughs> but so long as there's that emotional punch to it, uh, we think that for the time being, that that's going to be the overall association you have with that object, more so than if, if there wasn't so potent an emotional response. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, about we have this sense that if we hate something, that sticks around for an even longer time. But in fact, we find that the positive end of things is really what benefits from emotion. So if you are excited about something or something was really pleasing and enjoyable to you, that positive feeling is actually really uh, powerful. So the example you opened up with gifts, yeah, if I'm really excited about a gift you just gave me or I find it uh, very enjoyable that particular positivity really stands the test of time, even more so interestingly than those negative uh, attitudes you might form when you get a present. Those seem to fade away. So you couldn't go out to a group of 100 people and give them each various gifts and trinkets to elicit an emotional response. How were you able to conduct this research to come to a conclusion? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt to Matt on this because the tool that we use to both get the general attitude, right? That liking or disliking and the emotionality that goes along with it is rooted in the words that we use. And Matt's done a lot of work building this tool to use words as a way of understanding people's opinions. Yeah, so Andy and I were brainstorming about, okay, what would be an interesting thing we could talk about the strength of an attitude toward? And so we came up with the idea that, well, not a lot of researchers use these naturalistic kind of occurrences in life uh, to study attitudes and attitude formation. But what if we caught people the day after they had just received a Christmas present? Could we take the day after Christmas to predict what they would think of that gift or what their attitude toward that gift would be one month later? And so it really came from us wanting to try to find this almost naturalistic way of seeing new attitudes being created in the wild. Uh, and so what Andy was referring to with a tool that I've created uh, in, in conjunction with others is called the evaluative lexicon. And, and the basic idea is our, our words can tell us, uh, you and other people, what our opinion is based on. Is it positive or negative? Well, if it is, we might use words like uh, great and fantastic to describe our positive opinions and terrible and hate, kind of words that we've been using in this podcast already uh, to, to signal negative. But we also use those for emotion. So if you say something is exciting or enjoyable, that has some feeling. Uh, whereas words that are uh, less emotional, like uh, excellent or even helpful, uh, those words are quite positive as well. They're just not as based on a person's feeling. So we use the language that people told us about their gifts uh, the day after Christmas and use that language to predict uh, how long lasting that opinion would be when we followed up with them again one month later. And they told us about their gifts using language at that point, too. Again, if there's a gift, you give someone a can opener, they could say, wow, that's an excellent can opener because it's a good quality. That word doesn't tell you that they have a strong emotional connection to it. It's not something they're going to be bragging about in the future. But if they say, wow, this is the most awesome picture, I really love it that will probably have a little bit more impact or predictability a little bit further down the line. 
But but one person's utilitarian can opener can opener is another person's you know emotional can opener, right? It's possible if there's some sort of sentimentality to it, someone could say, "I love this can opener," or like if it just like works so well that you're using it all the time and you have these positive feelings, right? You use it to entertain your friends and family as as you're you know cooking stuff when they come over. You can attach emotionality to it, right? And so the point is that there aren't some things that people get emotional about and other things that never have emotion locked onto. But if we just kind of watch the words they use, right? One person might say, oh, this is just a a well-made can opener. I go, okay, your words tell me you like it, but there's not a lot of emotion there. But if you say, I love this can opener, I go, oh, your words still tell me you like it, but they're also telling me that you like it for these emotional reasons, whatever, (laughs) whatever those might be for you. Yeah, and we and we definitely see an association between uh, products that are more hedonic, as we talk about in marketing, more hedonic in nature. You use them because of the feelings they give you uh, and people's emotional responses. So, yeah, hedonic products elicit more emotion. But we've done, uh, you know, different analyses looking at, well, is that what accounts for the difference? Is it really about the type of product? And like Andy was saying, no. Even when controlling for what type of product it was, if it's a can opener versus a film, uh, we still see that if you imbue your opinion with emotion, uh, it sticks around for longer. You did your initial study the day after Christmas and then came back a month later and asked the same questions? Or was this a different approach to really see how enduring these feelings were? So for most of these, at each of the moments that we're asking for people's opinions, we're giving them an opportunity to pick a bunch of words that describe their opinion and sort of settle on what's the word that best describes it. And that procedure we do, like you said, the day after Christmas, and we do almost the same procedure, swapping out some words to make sure people aren't just saying the same word again um, a month later. And then we can see, like, are the are the positivity slash negativity of the words people are choosing immediately after Christmas in line with the ones that they're choosing a month later, right? So we can sort of look quantitatively, even though we're looking at the words people use, to see is the amount of positivity changing over that month, um, just based on the words that people are selecting. Um, but but there are other <laughs> things that we did as well in terms of looking at people uh, naturally expressing their opinions. And, and maybe Matt can talk a little bit about when we look at restaurant reviews over time, how can those give us another clue of this very, the same process? Yeah. So in addition to looking at gifts, we also looked at brands in very much the same way. And we can talk about that uh, uh, too. But what Andy was referring to is when we went all out on looking at naturalistic language, where we're no longer in the lab whatsoever. Now we're looking at online reviews of thousands of restaurants. And what Yelp allows you to do, yelp.com, you can review a restaurant one time when you visit the restaurant. And then anytime you go to that restaurant again in the future, you can write a new review about your new experience. So what we thought is maybe the language that people use in their first review would predict how much their opinion changed when they went to that restaurant a second or a third or even a fourth time uh, when we could look at those reviews. So we quantified the language they used in their first review for how positive and how emotional that language was. And then we did the same thing uh, looking at the positivity of their second or third review. And then we looked at the difference. How much did people's opinions shift based on how emotional they were uh, for the first review? And what we found is that the more emotion that a person expressed in their first review, their first visit to that restaurant, the less that opinion changed when they expressed that opinion uh, in the future for their second visit. 
And this was the case uh, both for their final summary star rating that they gave to the restaurant, so one out of five stars, as well as the very language that they used to communicate that opinion. The positivity of that language changed less if the first review was more emotional. So a person could be at a nice restaurant, they had great service that night, they gave it a five-star review, but maybe didn't say much about it. That person could easily give it a three-star review a month later if it would just happen to be that occasion and they really didn't have this connection or this emotional reaction to their first day. I was uh, recently in Orlando and stopped by a Spanish tapas restaurant, and I really love Spanish tapas. So I gave it a great review, used fantastic words for it, and then I went and read what other people had to say, and they, they really weren't quite so generous. But I wonder how much of that was actually my personal interest in that type of cuisine at that particular moment. It just it, it was the perfect solution to my hunger needs then, so strong emotions. So I would probably go back there if I were there another year and maybe give the similar review. So, and that even speaks to the sort of capstone study in the project that we did, which is if people are given information, right? How does information adjust their their take on these things, right? So if you've formed your initial take based on a bunch of emotional experience, even when other people might be saying contrary things, it, it might have a harder time changing that first impression that you had, right? And so we, we've done some work also looking at this as a persuasion tool. It's a little bit different. As I am saying it out loud, I realize it's a little bit different than what we did. But the, the spirit of it is there, which is that, yes, naturally over time, people's opinions fluctuate, but the strength of a person's attitude also has something to do with how able they are to withstand contrary opinions, right? And so one potential next step of this is to think about it in those terms as well. Yeah, and building off what Andy is saying, we don't know what these people are doing in between the time that we look at them, uh, we bring them into the lab at time one, the very first, and then one month later. They could be being hit with tons of different kinds of information, and that might be particularly true for brands, uh, which is our you know second set of studies, where we show that, yeah, one month later, uh, your opinion has stuck around if you were more emotional in the first place uh, toward those brands. But these people are being hit with advertisements, uh, with, you know, controversies that might inflame uh, on Twitter, as we've all seen. And so what we're seeing here is real world variability trying to influence these people. And yet, despite that kind of everyday interaction we might have with certain brands, uh, attitudes are more likely to stick around if you are more emotional one month earlier. How much can we lend this same type of thinking to other areas, such as politics, which appears to have an enduring factor and maybe is based more on feelings than the hard facts of the political questions of the day? That's funny. As, as we're talking here, I'm remembering where this project, <laughs> just as, as an aside, I still remember viscerally, which is strange all these years later, and it must be because of the positive emotion that I was feeling at the time, Matt. But we were, so Matt and I knew each other in grad school, and he had graduated a year early and had gone off uh, to start a postdoc in a business marketing school. And he had come back to Columbus, Ohio, and we were just talking about things. And he said, let's do a project. <laughs> I was like, okay, that sounds fine. Uh, and I had been doing work on the stability of attitudes, right? Do attitudes change over time? And, and I had been looking at things like political attitudes or social attitudes. And Matt, of course, had been doing this work on the emotionality of people's opinions, uh, starting in a marketing department. And so the idea of looking at 
do the emotional bases of your consumer attitudes <laughs> predict how much it changes over time was like the perfect fit. Um, and I think based on work that we've all done and sort of the state of the attitudes research that exists, which kind of shows that, you know, fundamentally there are certain principles of how we react to things positively or negatively, right? And the things that predict enduring opinions tend to do so, whether we're talking about political attitudes or health attitudes or these other kinds of attitudes. And so although we don't have exactly the data to perfectly address the question, right? So our scientist cap is firmly on and we say we don't actually know, but I think we could probably place a bet that it's it would extend to these other domains, right? The kinds of political issues that people get really fired up about are the kinds of issues that remain important and salient to that person over time, right? And would and presumably be attitudes that aren't changing as much. Whereas people who support an issue or a politician or a health initiative, but don't have that kind of emotional oomph behind it, may stray from their initial um, inclination to think about it positively or negatively. What did your research tell you then that you didn't suspect or you weren't anticipating when you started? The, the thing that stands out to me is that even, so researchers for a very long time have really put their money on rational, reasoned, deep thinking as the way to create long-lasting attitudes. And that makes complete sense. And, and those do last a long time. But both researchers and lay individuals, as we found, tend to overlook the power that attitudes based on emotion can have. So we did a survey of about a thousand people and we asked them, if you had to choose between these two ways of creating an opinion, which do you think would last longer? Those based on an emotional reaction or those based on more of your thoughtful reasoning? And something like 74% of participants all sided toward rational reasoned thought as those creating the strongest opinions. And so researchers and lay individuals seem to really believe that those are the ones that are going to stick around. But in, but in fact, as, as our research shows, that's not always the powerful way to create opinions. We've shown another route that can create very strong opinions as well. And in one study uh, that we haven't talked too much about, Andy mentioned it a bit, is our final experiment where we actually experimentally uh, try to persuade people using something that would evoke an emotional response uh, from them versus something that's equally positive, it's just not as emotional. So one was a, uh, a story uh, about this uh, aquatic animal soaring through the water and how amazing it was to, to be on the back of this, this uh, aquatic animal. Whereas the other was a, an encyclopedic entry talking about all the benefits that this animal has both for the environment uh, as well as you know for nutrition and that sort of thing. And what we found is that the emotion-evoking stories stuck around for, for longer uh, compared to the more encyclopedic entry, which decayed more over time. So what pieces of information or data are missing at this point? Where do we need to go to really have a better handle on what instills strong, long-lasting opinions? And is this something we can apply in our own lives and the way we interact with others? As is so often the case, there are both the theoretical and applied next steps. So theoretically, I, as, as Matt mentioned, 
We know a little bit less about exactly what people are doing to hang on to these opinions that are based in so much emotion. So are they fending off uh, their attackers? <laughs> Seems maybe less plausible for some of those topics. But for others, you know, the way that people hang on to their opinions is to counter argue uh, the naysayers out there. Um, another is, you know, how are these opinions stored in people's heads, right? Are they stored in, in some way that emotional opinions are a little bit different from opinions that don't have as much emotion that makes them stick around longer? So those are kind of the fun next theoretical questions that we would want to tackle to figure out, like, what is it exactly about emotion that's making these opinions stick around for so much longer? And then the applied uh, route is is to think kind of like you said, can do, do these extend to other areas? Um, how could campaigns utilize, like Matt said, these sort of more emotional appeals that tend to create attitudes that decay less over time? Um, and what would that look like, practically speaking, right? So if we were to, to give advice on how to communicate in a way that would rally long-lasting support, you know, what, what are the actual ways that you construct a message that, that does that effectively? Yeah, like Andy was saying, we, we don't know exactly why these attitudes stick around as long, or sh I should say longer. Uh, but we have some speculation on that. So to interest the listeners into what might be coming in the future, we, we have some evidence, for instance, that if we can blunt an emotional response while someone is, you know, giving their opinion, that can weaken the attitude. Uh, and so actually we did, Andy and I have done some research along with some other of our colleagues showing that Tylenol, uh, taking Tylenol can actually blunt this sort of emotional reaction, which slows people down from being able to give us their opinion quickly. And in classical attitudes research, slowing people down when they're trying to give you their opinion, that's a sign that, ooh, that, that attitude's not as strong in their mind at that moment, meaning we might have weakened it a, a bit. So in fact, Tylenol uh, can, can be a way, a way to, to test these sort of things. And that's, that's a new frontier. Also, it's not crazy that that we just were like, let's give people Tylenol and see what happens. There's a bunch of interesting uh, research, both by by lots of other uh, great people and work that I've been involved in as well, that shows that you know Tylenol we think of as this sort of physical pain blocker. Yes, but all these studies keep showing that it's also blocking these kinds of negative or or just. Uh, emotional uh, social experiences as well. Um, and so those those effects of Tylenol seem to extend to these areas that you might not think. And talk about what findings surprise you. It surprises me. And yet we keep seeing it over and over again, even in labs that I've been involved with. Um, so if anyone was like, where did that Tylenol thing come from? <laughs> it wasn't some fever dream that Matt had. There was a reason to, to do it. And the and the idea, the idea being if that we can... Uh blunt that emotional reaction and weaken it, that gives us a sign that, oh, what's happening might be that when someone's opinion comes to mind, when we ask them about it, uh, they're getting a signal. They're getting a kind of emotional signal that says like, yep, that's your attitude, go for it. So it's giving them important information. And when we block that information, that feeling, then they don't feel as maybe certain or they don't feel as confident in their opinion, which means we might've weakened it a bit by blocking that emotional information. Well, Andy and Matt, I'd like to thank you for spending some time with me today to talk about your research. It's really interesting, and I'm about to uh, go out to a restaurant and see if I can uh, evoke an emotional response and maybe encourage myself to return. Nice, thank you so much, this is fun. Thank you. Thanks, cheers. If you enjoyed the research presented in this episode, 
Don't miss the 2021 APS Virtual Convention, May 26th through the 27th, where psychological scientists from around the globe will be sharing their research. Special early bird registration rates are in effect until April 15th. Learn more by visiting the APS website at psychologicalscience.org.